Hello, friends. Welcome to Stand to Reason. I'm Greg Kokel, your host. And uh, just to keep you up to date, uh, I sometimes forget to do this, but I want to tell you what I'm going to be speaking in the next couple of weeks. Uh, actually, Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, here in the Southern California area, July 23rd and 24th. That would be a Friday. Is that right? No, that's a Saturday. Yeah, it's a Saturday event. And I spill over into Sunday morning services. And uh, I've got a whole bunch of things I'm doing on Saturday, Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley. I can't remember all the talks. But I do know on the 24th, I'm going to be doing two services there in the morning. And the title of the talk I'm doing that morning is, I actually have a little post-it in my Bible here, because I wrote this statement down out of frustration during a show sometime, and then I developed a talk after the concept. And the, the thing I wrote was simply, faithfulness is not theologically complicated. Faithfulness is not theologically complicated. And I guess I was frustrated with so many Christians who are going off on tangents, uh, wondering about certain issues, and faltering on their commitment to them because of pressure from the culture, when in fact, biblically, they're not hard. They're straightforward. They're not theologically complicated. Anyway, there's five issues that I'll be talking about that morning um, from the Scriptures. I'm not trying to persuade people in a clever apologetics way of their truth. It's not for outsiders. It's for insiders. Here is what the Bible clearly teaches. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then this are the, these are the concepts that you faithfully follow as his representative, like Jesus being the only way, or being pro-life with regards to the abortion issue, or your views about gender and sexuality and marriage and all of those kinds of things. The Bible is not ambiguous on these notions. Anyway, that's what I'll be talking about on Sunday, Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley on the 24th, and a host of other topics on the 23rd. And then the following weekend, I'll be at Crestview Presbyterian Church in Westchester, Ohio, it's West Chester, so that's two words, apparently. And at First Baptist Church in Fairborn, Ohio, uh, both on July 31st. So I'll be in morning at uh, Crestview Press, and then at First Baptist in uh, Fairborn in the afternoon. There's apologetics kind of conference I'll be part of and doing some other things. So um, you can, I guess, get the skinny on that. Uh, on our website, str.org, and uh, the speakers are listed there at the different places they go to, but I have just some summary information for you here. So again, that's uh, Crestview Presbyterian Church in West Chester, Ohio, on the 24th in the morning, and I'm sorry, make that the 31st in the morning, and that First Baptist Church in Fairborn, which is close by, apparently, Ohio, on uh, in the afternoon. Alan Schleiman, who is overseas at the moment in Syria or someplace like that, does it every year. God bless him. He's got the hard duty. Uh, but he did get a first-class upgrade in one of those lay-down seats for his 10-hour flight over, which, lucky him, uh, complimentary, good for him, but he's working hard now. But he'll be at North Coast Church in Vista, California. How, how many times have we spoken at North Coast Church in the life of Santa Reason, 29 years? I bet you we've been there 20 or 30 times, uh, maybe even more. 
between me and Alan and then some of our other speakers. Anyway, North Coast Calvary. I think it was North Coast. Well, it just says North Coast Church Vista. That's August 8th. And he'll be on SDR's Instagram on August 17. I'm not sure what he's doing there, but he'll be there. And uh, I also mentioned to you that, okay, well, these are already passed now for this show. Amy Hall, live Q&A, Wednesday, July 20 at 1 p.m. on Facebook. Okay, there you have that. Now, I started last hour. Incidentally, let me give you the number again because uh, I got no callers right now. If you're listening, you want to call 855-243-9975. You see, you know, I would like to think absence makes the heart grow fonder. Okay, I've been gone for a month and can't wait to talk to Mr. Kokel. Or out of sight, out of mind. You know, that's the other half, and maybe that's what's going on now. Anyway, here I am at your service. <clears throat> I launched the last program talking about uh, the abortion issue since it's a political hot potato now in light of the SCOTUS decision to reverse Roe versus Wade and also uh, Casey versus uh, what, whatever it was. Casey, Roe and Casey. And I said that there are two categories of information or categories of consideration regarding this broader issue. One of those categories is legal. And that is what the Supreme Court weighed in on. It did not weigh in on any moral issue. It only asked the question, is abortion, the right to take the life of your unborn child, a right that is protected by the Constitution? They said, obviously not. And I think most legal minds see that. And therefore, they reversed Roe, did not make abortion illegal. They just said, the states decide. Let the elected officials do the deciding decision-making on this. Um, and they can make their own moral judgments about whether they think that practice um, is appropriate for their constituency. Okay. I am going to speak now about the moral question, but I want to put the moral question into perspective. We actually have a pretty good idea how many abortions have been performed since Roe v. Wade was enacted, I guess, by a decision of the Supreme Court on January 22, 1973. And um, the numbers come from, largely from the Guttmacher Institute. The uh, CDC doesn't have all the numbers because there are some states like California, for example, that doesn't even weigh in with their numbers. But the Guttmacher Institute, which used to be the fact-finding enterprise for Planned Parenthood, so this is an organization that is meant to promote abortion rights. They have figures, and the figures are mind-boggling. So let me put the figures into perspective for you. On September 11, 2001, two jumbo jets slammed into the World Trade Centers and Towers in New York City. 
struck the western section of the Pentagon. A third one plowed into the field in Pennsylvania, where you know, courageous passengers overwhelmed the terrorist pilots. Many of you remember that, though, of course, now you have to be 25 years old to have any conscious recollection. But 2,977 victims. 2,977 victims. This brought the country to its knees emotionally. And the wound persists 20 years later. But there's uh, this is old news, of course, but there's something that you don't know. And that is the number of human lives that were snuffed out on 9-11 was less on average than the number of children who have died every single day, day after day for nearly half a century through abortion on American soil. 63,459,781 abortions. 3,448 a day. That's 21,316 consecutive 9-11 days of death. It took Hitler 13 years to vaporize 6 million Jews. It took Americans six years after Roe to exceed Hitler's Holocaust by killing their own unborn children through abortion. That's 10 Holocausts back to back. Abortion in America has taken more lives than all the Allied soldiers, that would be British, American, French, Australian, and there were more, Canadian, and all the Axis soldiers, Russian, Italian, Japanese, and all of the civilians of any stripe anywhere in the world that died during the Second World War. More than all the armies on both sides and all the civilians. Since Roe v. Wade, more than that died at our hands in the home of the free, the land of the brave, America. So no moral issue, uh, no political issue, no human rights issue has a greater significance in the 21st century than abortion. The fact is the most dangerous place for a baby to be is resting inside of her mother's womb. So, them's the facts. Now, the question about whether or not abortion is moral really comes down to one basic question. And I illustrate this question whether it's in public talks given on the issue or in conversations I have with others, with an analogy. Say your child comes up behind you while you're working at some task and says, Mommy or Daddy, can I kill this? 
Now, remember, your back is to them. So what's the question you must ask before you can answer their question? Well, you need to ask them, what is it? Of course, we have to know what a thing is before we know whether or not it's right to kill that thing. Now, abortion kills something that's alive. People say, well, nobody knows when life begins. That's nonsense. Everybody knows when life begins. Life begins at conception. That's not Bible. That's science. Or here's a simple way around that one, or to make the point. Is it growing? Yes, then it's alive. If it's growing, it's alive. So, abortion kills that living thing. Is it right or wrong to kill that living thing? Well, that depends on the answer to only one question. What is it? And this is the question nobody asks. They don't focus in on it. They talk about abortion, or, well, they, I should back up. They talk about rights and freedoms and privacy and equal protection and all kinds of stuff. They even will use the word abortion, but they don't talk about what abortion does. And so this is why in conversations with people, I don't want to say a woman has a right to abortion. I want to say, what is an abortion? Well, abortion is when you terminate your pregnancy. Yeah, and what happens when you terminate your pregnancy? Notice the euphemisms that are being used. There's a living thing in there, right? Yes, and what happens in an abortion or pregnancy termination to that living thing? Well, it gets killed. So something alive gets destroyed. So you're asking whether a woman has a right to destroy some particular living thing. Okay, now we know what the issue is. Now we have to answer the question, what is that? What's there? Oh, it's a fetus. Nothing is just a fetus. Nothing is just a zygote. Nothing is just an adolescent. Nothing is just an old thing. Because all of these are words that describe stages of development of some kind of living thing. You could have a, you know, an adolescent, you could have a, a, a dog fetus or an adolescent cat or an old llama. <laughs> All right. You could have an acorn, which is an oak in a seed stage. You could have a fully grown oak, which is an ad- grown in, a, in an adult stage. But those things are oaks. Just like the first was a cat, the second was a dog, and the third was a llama. So something inside is growing in mom at different stages of development. What is that thing that's going through the stages of development? This is not a mystery. What kind of creature comes out of a pregnant female creature of any kind? The same kind of creature as the female. You don't have a woman who's had eight kids and is wondering, gee, uh, what's growing in there? Then she has another human being, and she said, oh my gosh, nine in a row, what are the chances? This is nuts. We know what's growing there. We know what it is, and every mother who wants her baby identifies it as such. My baby is in its or hers or his, if they know the sex, second or second trimester or sixth month or ninth month or fifth month or whatever. My baby. 
it is only merely a piece of tissue when people are trying to justify taking its, his or hers, life. Blob of tissue. Well, keep in mind, all of us are blobs of tissue. Some more blobbier than others. But get the point. So, what is it? We know what it is. The thing growing inside mom is not mom. It has, you know, a different sex potentially. It has different DNA. It has different fingerprints. It has a separate heart. It's got different sexual organs potentially. It's not mom. It's inside mom. No question about that. Mom's involved. By the way, it's not just inside mom because nobody put it in there. Mom is producing it, he or she. Mom's making. It's not an unplanned pregnancy. It's an unplanned human being because that's what's there. Now we know what it is. Of course, we always knew it, didn't we? Now the question again. The answer to what is it is it's an unborn human being in the place that all unborn human beings belong, mom's womb. Now what? Okay, I want an abortion. And an abortion does what? Ends my terminates my pregnancy, which means what? It kills that thing. So what you want to do is you want to kill your unborn baby. Oh, that's rhetoric. No, it's what's rhetorical about it. Is it unborn? Do you want to kill it? Is it your child? Y yes, yes, yes. It's not rhetoric. It's not distortion. It's reality. It's the truth. Now, is it okay to kill innocent human beings for the reasons that people give abortions? No. I got my four-year-old. I got my two-year-old. I got my two-day-old. I don't want it. It's a burden. Costs too much. Has a defect. Okay, kill it. We don't do that. Well, actually, in some cases, philosophers are saying we ought to, and they're just following the logic of abortion. They, they, some philosophers have called it, have called it. It's, just, it's a matter of record. Afterbirth abortion. Have the abortion after birth. Why not? If you have it before birth, what's the big difference between the one before birth and the one after birth? It's the same one. It's just in a different location. It's easy to kill after than before because before it's inside the mother's womb and you got to poison it, you got to suffocate it, you got to cut it into pieces and hope you get all the pieces out. Just wait until the baby comes out completely, then kill the baby. So there are people who advocate that and it makes sense in light of their logic. I've written about this already in the past. But generally speaking, for those who are sane and commonsensical in terms of their moral assessments, is it okay to kill innocent human beings for the reason people have abortions? No. That's not my opinion. That's everybody's opinion. Except when it comes to the unborn. And then... Since the unborn is under the wraps of mother's body, you can't see it, then all the rules seem to change. Unless there are pictures of children who have been aborted, then you get a clear picture of what you've just done. 
So the moral question has to do with whether abortion, though legal, is moral. And the key to answering that question is answering another question. First, what is it? And we know what it is. It's a separate individual human being growing within the womb of that baby's, or fetus, if you will, or zygotes, if you will, mother, which means the mother is producing it. It's not an invader from outside. It's not a tapeworm. So can you kill that for the reasons that you've given? The answer is obviously no. My body, my choice, it's not your body. Oh, your body's involved, but your body's involved the day after the baby's born, too. It's not pregnancy that expropriates a woman's freedom, creates a burden on the woman. It is motherhood, which starts with pregnancy, but doesn't end with the end of pregnancy. That's just the beginning of, <laughs> of, of, of woes. Then you got to take care of that baby for 18 years or more. So any arguments in favor of making your life easier through abortion apply equally to making your life easier, my body, my choice, after the baby is born. Still your body being used in a way that maybe you don't want to take care of this child. What about deadbeat dads? My body, my choice. I don't want that kid. Never did want that kid. Why should I have to pay for it? My body, my choice. Why doesn't that work? None of these slogans work, friends. They all fall apart when you look at them very carefully. People don't look at them very carefully. They're not allowed to because the slogans are screamed at the top of people's voices. And basically they're saying, I want what I want and I want it. And that's all that matters. Like I said last hour, not truth, but power. Not truth, but power. Now, there's so much more I could say about this. I mean, even, even let's just say, let's say that, that, that uh, I'm thinking about abortion and rape, incest. Those are terrible circumstances. In fact, sometimes when that issue is brought up, what the critic is really looking for is to find out if Christians have a heart or not. But because we have a heart, we are not willing to approve of the murder of an innocent child because of a terrible thing that had to happen to the child's mother. Why make the child pay the price? Well, this causes the mother anguish. Well, presuming that it does, let's just say it does. What, what is the pro-lifer's case? The pro-lifer's case is that it's an innocent human being who's suffering and whose life is taken. Does the, is it okay to take the life of an innocent human being under those circumstances when the mother has suffered this assault? Why would that make it okay to kill the child if indeed that's what it is, a human child? But of course, that's back to the basic question, what is it? 
what is it? And the basic moral logic is very straightforward. I'll offer it to you here just for your reflection. But when I build my case regarding abortion, no matter how it's being justified, it always comes back to what is it? First question. And then the moral logic. And the moral logic is very simple. It's wrong to take the life of an innocent human being. Abortion takes the life of an innocent human being. Therefore, abortion is wrong. There you have a simple syllogism in which the premises are arguably true. It's wrong to take the life of innocent human beings. Abortion does that. QED, the conclusion follows. Necessarily. Now people want to fuss around with the word person. Oh, maybe a human, but not a person. Really? What's the difference? Well, you got to be able to answer that question because you've just divided humanity into two different groups. Human persons and human non-persons. All human beings are right there, but some of them are non-persons, and the human beings who are persons get full protection of the law. The ones who are not persons can be killed with impunity. So you better know where that line is. What side of the line are you on? Oh, I know where you, what side of the line you think the unborn is on. But this strategy has a, 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 a very dark history. This is the kind of thing that justified slavery way back in 1857. Dred Scott decision by the Supreme Court rendered black African slaves, human beings, as chattel property. Supreme Court. Okay, they drew, that's where they drew the line. Hitler drew the line of Jews and gypsies and Slavs on one side and Aryans on the other. Pol Pot did the same and down the line. So this personhood maneuver is just, is just a, a word game that is meant to disqualify certain members of the human family, true human beings, from being bona fide and protected members of the human community. Where are you going to draw the line? People have drawn that line all over the place. Now we've drawn the line here with passage down the birth canal. Really? Traveling a few inches takes you from being a non-valuable blob of tissue to a valuable human being that ought to be protected. It's the same baby inside the womb or outside of the womb. We just got a location difference. That's not going to work. There's all kinds of ways that this goes south. Nobody talks about that. They just scream about their rights and what they want. And they bang the podium, they stamp their feet and talk about me, 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 and obfuscate with euphemisms. This has been done before. All right. Okay, time for a break. We got some callers on board, and I will get to you in just a moment. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. 
Hashtag STR Ask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. Greg Kokel giving you a piece of my mind today here on board again after four weeks of absence, and uh, I'll be with you now for the rest of the summer, it looks like. Pretty much. I think I have a day or two off in the fall because I'll be out traveling somewhere, but I'm here now. And so is Joe in Mountain View, California. Joe, welcome to the show. Hello, Greg. Hello, Joe. Good to talk talk with you. Thank you. You too. Uh, Yes, I would like to ask a question and then maybe give an example. Um, So I'd like to ask, what do we... What should theists and Christians um, mean when they say that God is our maker, or God made me, God made you, or any individual mm-hmm. uh, person? And I saw a, a headline on a LGBTQ-friendly Christian website that, that says, God made me transgender, and God does not make mistakes. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of a logic, philosophical logic in there. Um, yeah. But you could actually swap out transgender with any kind of physical mm-hmm. characteristic, like mm-hmm. blindness or intersex or <laughs> That's right. blue eyes. That's um, right. Child molester. Pedophilia, you know, why not? I mean, I, that's, these are borderline gross kind of characterizations, but why not? Yeah. Yeah, and I've seen so, this uh, this kind of claim made multiple times before. Right. Um, so I think it comes down to what we mean when we say God made, or God made me a certain way, and I think it implies that it implies that God individually crafts each person like a a work of art, a unique uh-huh. work of art, like an artisan, mm-hmm. and chooses every detail down to your 
biochemistry, your eye color. And I think Christians often use use it in this way when we want to comfort uh, a child when they say, when they come to you and say, the kids tease me about the shape of my nose or the size of my ears. And then we reply, God made you perfect just the way you are. Mm -hmm. And my solution to, to this, this uh, issue is to say that God makes us in the sense that he designed human beings and created the biological mechanism for reproduction mm-hmm. reproduction and he allows errors to creep in during that process and he doesn't necessarily step in to fix things although he does have the right and ability to do so mm-hmm. he's a little bit more he's he's much more hands off than a hands-on kind of well, in the in the sense of making being our maker, I think you're exactly right. I mean, but in, and there's actually a couple of different ways to approach this. It seems to me, let's just say God made every single individual and manufactured an individual like say Lamborghini manufactures a car, a race car. All right. Well, that doesn't mm-hmm. mean the race car, even though it's made by expert technicians and engineers, and it comes off the line absolutely perfect in light of the kind of vehicle a Lamborghini is supposed to be. It doesn't mean it can't have a wreck. can't run out of gas. It, the pistons can't get fouled. The, the, the tires can't go south. You ride, drive it too fast and the brakes overload or whatever. I mean, I, 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 I saw <laughs> Ford versus, oh, Ferrari. It's not a Lamborghini. It's a Ferrari. Ford versus Ferrari. Okay, whatever. Even a thing that is made perfectly still can go south. Okay, so so even if I were to say God constructed every individual person, doesn't mean that any characteristic that individual person has sometime later in life is something that God placed there. Okay, and um, well, it's it uh, it is interesting to me. I mean, I just wonder the person who says God may be this way and God doesn't make mistakes. Do they really believe in God? I actually think that many times these slogans that are meant to be ways of sanitizing a person's behavior or whatever um, doesn't reflect their deep convictions. I I wonder about that. I just wonder if these slogans become self-serving, because there's a lot of questions that can be asked. What if it turns out that God did not make this particular detail that you're talking about? We know about transgender, and we know about homosexuality. Nobody is born in either way. In either case, are people born that way? We have no reason to believe that's the case. Okay, so if God makes us as human beings with, by the way, um, sexual apparatus for a particular kind of sex, if that's what God made, why would God make us with a desire for sex 
that is different than the sexual physical apparatus that he's given us for sex. I mean, doesn't that sound like a conundrum? If God made you this way, then why did he make you with sexual organs for for women when you desire sexually men? He gave you desire for men, and he gave you the organs for a woman. What What's up with that? Right. <laughs> see, this doesn't matter. See what you're saying there. Um, but even if uh, I'm, I'm kind of even going before the 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 person gets out of the womb. I'm saying right. The, you're talking about the general process. I agree with you on with, that. I think you're what right that that God immediately creates us. So He creates a process. And, and and that entails sexual interaction that then naturally results in a series of events that the body participates in in virtue of the kind of body it is that produces a human being of a certain sort. Right, that's an all-process that God has set up, and then and then it is the process He has created and ordained, and then the process does the work. Right? Right. I'm agreeing with that. I think that's the truth. And so when we say God's our maker, and even when we say, well, look, that's the nose God gave you, we're not talking about anything that has moral consequences. We're saying in in God's wisdom and by his system, these are the kinds of things that get produced according to God's plan and purposes. Okay, then you have other things that that, that human beings desire or sometimes other things that are part of the human form that don't seem right. Down syndrome, for example. There's a mistake. Mm -hmm. Something went south. Um, Or you have desires that develop later after birth that are inconsistent with other things that, that are true about a human being. So you may have male apparatus and believe in your mind that you're really a female. There's there's a conflict there. Okay, I get that, but that but uh, you know this is something that happens afterwards. So there is a sense that you could say this is the way God made you. When it's got when when it when there doesn't seem to be anything wrong or conflicted about the mm-hmm. thing you're talking about. So a nose is a nose. Some are bigger, some are smaller. Some are wider, some are skinnier. Some are black, some are brown, some are whatever. It's just all the variations of a nose. Nothing amiss here. But then you have something that's amiss, that does not seem to fit, and someone wants to claim, well, God gave me that. Really? Explain that to me. How did God give you that? What makes you think that God made you gay? God made you transgender. So God gave you a body. He gave you the wrong body. You just told me you're a woman in a man's body. Whose fault is that? That's God. He did make a mistake. He put you in the wrong body. That's why you're trying to change your body. So I guess the point I'm making is these slogans don't actually, uh, aren't actually applied in a straightforward or consistent fashion. To me, they just sound like a rhetorical way of justifying something the person wants and baptizing it with religious language. 
So I'm going to ask a person, well, tell me how that works. God doesn't make mistakes. I agree that God doesn't make mistakes, but mistakes are are made in this world. Right. Things happen that aren't part of God's purpose. How do we know what God wants? Well, we look at the way God made things. <laughs> Male and female, he created them. So that's God's purpose. Now, does that get goofed up? Yeah, for other reasons. God didn't make the goof up. Why would right. you think that God made the goof up? So it's frustrating when I hear these kinds of things because, like I said, they're just they're 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 rhetorical maneuvers, rhetorical flourishes that are meant to justify a person's perspective when, in fact, it doesn't justify it at all. Would you agree that it? comes out of a sloppy kind of uh, uh, lack of clarity on what we mean when we use a certain phrase like God made me yeah I I think I think what I don't think it's a lack of clarity or sloppiness because it, it initially just think of it and parents say that to kids okay well they're speaking in general terms and in a common sense fashion given their theism that makes sense. Because we're not talking about aberrations when pa parents say that. Oh, I have a funny nose. Hey, listen, that's the nose God gave you. God made you that way. Come on. What matters is something else that God gave you. That's the image of God in you. That's what makes you great, not whatever kind of nose you have. You know, so there's a way we, we do talk in less, in, in, in kind of loose sense where you say God made you that way, and of course we're referring to the process, not that he just manufactured you in like that. But then when people abuse the notion, then we have to be more precise about what we mean so that the right. abuse of it can't go forward. Right. Make sense? Yes. Yes. I, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you clarifying other um, equivocal words like hmm. evolution and science, yeah. which which you have talked about, how they have well, thanks, Joe. other meanings. Yeah, and it's, part of it is just being really alert to, to the rhetoric. I mean, words are the coin of the realm in all of these things. It is all of these clever little euphemisms that people employ to get the work done for them that careful thinking ought to do. Right? And, right. Um, and I mean, sometimes we have generalizations like pro-life. Well, pro-life, what that means right. is we think that babies shouldn't be killed. We, we are not pro every single form of life. We're not Janes. That's not our religion that we put a mask on so we don't inhale bacteria and kill the bacteria. We wear masks for different reasons now, but, but Janes wear it because they don't want to kill a bacteria or something, you know, because they value every living thing. Well, that's not our view. We just value the unborn child as being killed without justification. That's what we mean when we say we're pro-life. And I think most people understand that. There is kind of a challenge to pro-lifers that they're not consistently pro-life, so they're not against capital punishment. Right. But that's a different category, isn't it? Mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about killing innocent children versus killing guilty people, people who are guilty of a capital crime. That's a, it's a apples and oranges. 
So there are times when our, our our language is not as precise as it might be, but it's precise enough to make to do the job that we want it to do until the language is abused. And once the language is abused, the rhetoric is in play and people distort things, well, then we got to be more careful about it and, and say, okay, let's slow down and be very precise about this so there's no confusion. So uh, Agreed. Anyway. All right, buddy. It's good talking to you, Thank Joe. you, Greg. All right. Thank you for your call. Bye-bye. All right, bye. All right, let's take a break and come back to Patrick in West Virginia. Oh, we got a last name on Patrick. That's news. All right, we'll talk about that when we return. Let's stand to reason. Have you seen our brand new website? Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Stand to Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with the confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal, allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking, and we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic, and subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. All right, friends, final segment here, and uh, let's go to West Virginia, and Patrick. Hello, Patrick. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks, Greg. Hello. Hey, are you on a speakerphone? Yes. Can you come off the speakerphone and just, it's easier for me to understand. Yeah, I can you. do that. Thank you. Yeah. Give it a shot. So the question that I had was, I wrote an article on why Muslims should worship Jesus uh-huh. using the Quran. And I talked about the fact that according to the Quran in Surah 3321, Muhammad is Muslim's pattern of conduct. And I also talked about how Muhammad claimed if God had a son, he'd be the first to worship him. And we see in the New Testament, Jesus claims to be God's beloved son in the Gospels, 
and the Quran and its sources, Muhammad's earliest biographer, cites uh, the Gospels, and they, um, all of the Muslim sources claim to affirm the Bible. Mm-hmm. And thus, if they affirm the Gospels, they affirm what Jesus claims about himself in the Gospels. And thus, because Muhammad, because Muhammad said, if God had a son, he'd be the first to worship him, and Jesus claims to be God's beloved son, then if Muslims want to follow Muhammad's example, they have to worship Jesus. Right, that's the um, rationale. How should I move forward with that? Wow, it sounds to me like you have the argument pretty well in hand. Um, and there are a number of people who use this argument. Um, I'm trying to remember... Now, Nabil Qureshi was a friend of mine. He died a few years ago, and he wrote a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And David Wood was the one who led him to Christ over a number of years of battling out with him. But as I recall, that was a significant factor to him. And uh, Alan Schliemann, of course, makes this point, Alan being one of our team members, and he's the expert in Islam. In fact, he's in the Middle East right now teaching Christians and how to deal with uh, Islam. And uh, the tactic that he uses is, uh, is, uh, is, to, is to make the case that you just made, that the authoritative sources of Islam and Muslims are deeply committed to authority. If the Quran and the Hadith and the, uh, you know, etc., if these make the case, if they teach it, then it's so, period. They are, mm-hmm. the, they, they are the authoritative sources. And so what Alan has developed in his uh, Ambassador's Guide to Islam is this argument that you just described, taking Muslims back to their own texts texts which say, affirm the authority of the Gospels, uh, or the Gospel, I guess is the way they put it, and of Moses, I think, as being God's Word, and um, other passages that say God's Word cannot be corrupted. And this is one of the claims that Muslims make, too, regarding the New Testament. In fact, the very first engagement— encounter between Nabil Qureshi and David Wood was on this basis. Nabil said to David, who he saw reading the Bible, you know, that book has been corrupted. It's a standard challenge, okay? But the difficulty is, is that Muhammad was born in 675. So he's 8th century, right? The uh, In terms mm-hmm. of his work and revelation, okay? By the 8th century, um, Codex of uh, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex uh, Alexandrinus, which I have seen both. These are large copies of the Bible that I saw sitting next to each other in the British Museum. There they are. Both yeah, they're these, already present before they, Muhammad. Exactly. Muhammad they they are like fifth century, so they existed at the very time that Muhammad made this claim that God's word cannot be corrupted. Those codices, Mm -hmm. of course, contain the Gospels, and therefore those words in those books would fall directly under the assurance that Muhammad gave uh, in the Quran that, uh, that God's word cannot be corrupted. Therefore, we should be able to rely on these 
codices, but these are the very kind, they contain the very kind of information that is rejected by Muslims. Now, this puts Muslims in a, in a, in a bind because their sources say that our sources are reliable, essentially. So then why are they saying our sources are corrupted? Because now it seems they're taking Muhammad himself to task. And this puts them in a terrible circumstance. And that's the point, just like you said. And if that's the case, if we are to acknowledge what Jesus said in the Gospels, and these are God's word, and Jesus is the prophet of God, and the Gospels are an un, uh, uncorrupted source, then Jesus is the Son of God, which Muslims hold to be a, a terrible sin, called the sin of shirk, mm -hmm. to declare. So they are at cross-purposes there. I mean, it, it seems—I'm not the expert, but I—you know, Alan is, but he can yeah. give you more detail. But what you actually have told me reflects the basics of the argument. I mean, it seems to me you have it. And I'm curious, uh, it, what you've said— um, how that's fared with the Muslims you've discussed, or haven't you discussed it with any yet? I I kind of want to like bring this up with them. Like, um, I've a lot of times like they seem to be desperate to avoid the conclusion that their prophet and their sources um, claim that our Bibles as good as gold, despite the fact that. that says, like, um, Muhammad's even told in 1094, if you're in doubt, go to those who had the book before you. I bring up these passages, and they're, it seems like, like, things like Surah 4, 175, and I point out that all that proves is that Muhammad was wrong in his claim to affirm the scriptures. It doesn't disprove the Gospels. And it doesn't prove they're corrupted. It just proves that Muhammad was wrong when he affirmed that. That's what they say to you? It contradicts them. Is that what they say to you? But, but what they say to me is they bring up Surah 4, verse 157, and they'll go, see, it contradicts the gospel, therefore... And I to well, them, well, that, okay. all it proves is that your source contradicts the gospel, despite the fact that it affirms the gospel. Well, what it shows is that their, their source is contradict itself. That's yeah, what exactly. it shows. And so that's, yeah. of course, that's the point you want to make to them, because that's mm -hmm. their source of authority. I'm wondering in your conversations with them, if you need to ask first what their authority is. Now, of course, it's mm -hmm. obvious it's the Quran, it's the Hadith, it's the, um, what's the third source, like uh, the Surahs. The uh, Tafsir and the... Yeah, I, I, the yeah, yeah, and you need, to, and so when they affirm that, then you go to these passages. Now, if they say, after you've cited your passage, they say, "Well, this is the passage that disagrees with you guys," and, and that's when it seems to me it's appropriate to say, "But there's a problem with that. What's that? Don't mm -hmm. you see the problem? Your yeah. passage that you cited out, and I'm role playing it right now. So I'm saying to the Muslim, "Don't you see the problem? What do you mean?" Well, the passage you pointed out disagrees with, with the Bible. Yes, of course, that's my point. But the passage you just pointed out also disagrees with the Quran. Yeah. Now you have a contradiction. How, how do you deal with that? And by the way, it's not, 
there are people point out contradictions with the Bible, okay, in in our scriptures, and um, and 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 oftentimes these are misunderstandings of the passages, whatever. But these particular passages in the Quran are not ambiguous. They are straightforward. They are they are unequivocal in the point that they're making. So, and this is why this this approach is so compelling. I think when Abdul Murray was writing on this, also another former Muslim, um, he said this is one of the most powerful arguments you could possibly give uh, to to a Muslim. So, uh, I think you've got it. I'm a, I got about twenty seconds before I, I go off the air here, but I I think Patrick, I think you got it well, and I think you've got to continue to press this point with your Muslim friends and and let that that the force of that argument sink in with them because i think it's really clear that your that that their texts are in conflict with their texts okay and that's what you want them to see um and if you they take their text seriously then they've got to take the new testament seriously or at least the gospel as well patrick thanks for the talk or the call and uh that's all the time for this our friends greg kokel here for stand to reason you give them heaven. All right. Bye-bye now.